0: Won't we begin this morning? And uh, we're going to study again on forgiveness. So let's consider today forgiveness. And um, I want you to turn to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. Let me pray for these things, and then we're going to. Uh, commence this study, all right? Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, we ask that you would use it as a lamp and as a light. We pray that you would direct us by it and that we would walk in the way. Father, for the needs on our hearts, we pray that you would accomplish your will in them. We are thankful for the times that Medicine helps and surgery helps, and sometimes we wish that the doctors would know more and give us more solutions. Uh, thinking for Rachel and Jane right now in particular, and we just pray that you'll uphold folks like that. Um, Father, we ask that you'll sustain um, Gallagher's and the Proputnowitz's during this season <clears throat> of planting and getting everything ready for the season. Pray for Jared as he arranges his schedule for his upcoming um, uh, jobs, and Lord, we just pray that you would go before us and direct our paths, help us as we uh, focus on forgiveness in this hour, we pray for that in Jesus' name, amen. We have been studying through the subject of forgiveness and trying to do it somewhat inductively, and we've begun by just talking about the fact that God is a forgiving God. There's a phrase that says, to err is human, to forgive is divine. And we tried to test that theory. Is it truly divine to forgive? And it is. When God describes himself in Exodus, when he speaks to Moses, he describes himself as a God who forgives. And that's stated repeatedly through the Old Testament. That's something that uh, people like David Daniel and Nehemiah prayed about. That's something that the psalmist uh, repeated, and it, it's just a truth that we need to hold to be the case. The scriptures teach that our God is a God of forgiveness. That Just to compare this, we don't have the same sense when we talk of a God like Allah. Whenever you read the Quran, which you probably don't do very often, and I don't, but when you think about those things, you often find that he's a very angry God. Our God is a God of forgiveness. He is a God who is the only one who can forgive, and he does so graciously. And when he does, he pardons us of our sin. We tried to go over the point that forgiveness is always within the context of sin. When sin hasn't taken place, when wrongdoing hasn't taken place, there's no need for forgiveness. So there's a certain context when it comes to forgiveness. Last week, as we began this, we talked about forgiveness, which is illustrated 12 ways that I found in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And two of those ways, they describe forgiveness as a mental activity on God's part. And then 10 of the ways that forgiveness is illustrated is through some physical activity on God's part. So... It's kind of like 12 men went to spy on Canaan, 10 were bad, 2 were good. This is, there are two ways that are mental on God's part, there are 10 ways that are physical. Does anyone remember the first mental illustration of forgiveness we studied last week? How does God illustrate forgiveness? Do you remember? I'm sorry? Last week? Oh, you weren't? Okay, sorry. I didn't remember. Now, does anyone else remember how uh, God illustrates forgiveness? No one remembers the illustration about forgiveness. (laughs) No, Dave gets it, right? So the first illustration of forgiveness is the fact that God chooses not to remember our sins. Which is why I playfully said the word remember ten times in the last two seconds. Um, So God says, your sins I will remember no more. And that's not to say he doesn't forget them. It's that he chooses not to bring them to mind. We talked about the psalmist saying that in Psalm 32, verse 2, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. talks about the fact that God is not remembering sin against us. And, and that's a wonderful thing. We, and just to quickly go over that, God chooses not to think about that. It's not that he doesn't know, it's, choose, it's that he chooses not to consider it, Bring it up to us. Bring it up to anyone else. That, that's just his promise towards us. So you have the psalmist saying, remember not the sins of my youth, but instead remember your steadfast love. So the psalmist, when he prays, is he prays that God would forgive and that God would remember that we're his child, that we're the one he has chosen. Okay? That's, that was the, the prayer of the psalmist. How does that inform what you and I think when it comes to forgiveness? It helps us because we have to realize that forgiveness does not mean we forget what someone has done against us. Sometimes it's almost impossible to forget how someone has wronged you. But it does mean you choose not to remember it. You choose not to bring it to your mind. You choose not to bring up the wrong to the person who wronged you. You choose not to bring up the wrong to other people who didn't wrong you. But that would be gossip, right? Okay. Um, that's forgiveness. So We talked about in a marriage when your wife does something wrong to you, you choose not to think about it. You choose not to bring it up to her again. You choose not to tell anyone else about it. Why? Because she's asked forgiveness and it's done. You choose not to bring it to mind. Obviously, we're called to forgive, and that's one of the aspects of our forgiving. Any questions on that before we go on? That is a mental activity that illustrates forgiveness. God says, I don't remember. Okay? He chooses not to recall. Let's go for the second illustration. Okay, This is in Psalm 32, verse 2. I'll read the context here. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So there's our context. And now we're going to have a lot of parallel statements for what that is. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. And in whose spirit there's no deceit. So the second illustration, second mental activity on God's part is that God does not count our sin against us. He doesn't count our sin against us. Now, the term there for count, that's the same kind of idea when we get to accounting. You're, you know, write it in the books. You know, you have debts. You have, um, what's the other one? I just want to say income. Credits. Oh, there it is. You have credits. You have debts. God does not write in the debt category. Okay? He doesn't reckon it against us. And uh, that, that is a wonderful thing for us to consider. Um, he doesn't remember our sins against us. He also doesn't credit things against us. So let me, let me go on here and consider. Um, I just want to go over some of what I studied before with this. So I wrote in my sermon before that my wife finished reading through the book of Numbers And it's no surprise what that book is about because God spoke to the people of Israel and he said, take a census of the congregation of Israel. So the command there in that book was to count the people. So the book of Numbers is about an accounting of God's people, a record that we still review today. And as we interact with other people, we do so with mental activities, with mental reckoning. If we don't have a mental record on someone, because we don't know him, we might be suspicious about that person. But if we know someone, especially someone we love, it's because when we think about them, we have a mental record of all the things about them that makes them lovable, that makes them lovely. Things come to mind. So sometimes our records of other people encourage us to trust them completely, We live in a fallen world, and therefore we encounter people we know, and based on what we know about them, we realize, well, we can't trust them. Why? Because there's something there between us and them. So the issue here is that we come to the Scriptures, and we realize that there's an issue between us and God. There's a record there. Because God does know us, and God does see us for who we are, and he knows us better than anyone else, and he knows what we do in the dark and in the daylight. And the question is, what is he going to do with the sins that we have committed against him? Is he going to minimize them? Is he just going to say, well, I'll just kind of sweep it under the carpet? What is he going to do Well, the truth of the scriptures is that he is going to not count that sin against us. And that's one of the ways he's going to say he's going to forgive us of our sin. So, the the term here for accounting refers to processing a situation. And sometimes we process things correctly, sometimes we don't. We Look at Genesis 38, that's the story of Judah, and that's the uh, that's the soiled story of Judah uh, when he had relations uh, with what he believed to be a harlot. It was actually his daughter Tamar. Uh, he, so he got it wrong. You have Eli the priest who reckoned that Hannah, when she was praying, was drunk. Well, he got that one wrong too, 1 Samuel chapter 1. But sometimes we can get it right. So, when we think of reckoning, we're talking about the way that you think about something, the way you process it in your mind. For example, when we think about something, we may be making a plan or seeking a solution. So, so Bezalel, he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he devised, he reckoned ways to construct the tabernacle out of gold and silver and bronze. And when you take that planning, that thought, and you put it into this realm of forgiveness, we see that forgiveness is when one does not think a certain expected way about someone who has wronged them. I'll say it again. Forgiveness is when one does not think a certain expected way about someone who has wronged them, because folks would plead that other folks not count their wrongs against them. That's our hope. No one wants someone else Remember what they have done wrong against them. They want them instead to forgive them. So, in our last study, we saw that Shimei, he threw stones at David and he cursed him. And Shimei asked King David not to. Later on, Shimei asked the king not to remember the wrong that he had done against him. But before that, Shimei requested that King David not think about his guilt, not to reckon him as guilty. Well, of course, he was guilty, but he pleaded with the king not to hold it against him. I did this wrong, but don't hold it against me. It's kind of like you go before the judge and you, you say, yeah, I was speeding, but I really just I don't want you to give me a ticket. You know, I, I don't want you to hold it against me for that. He wants forgiveness. That's what you want in the court of law. You would really want someone to forgive you. In this case with David, it seems that he did, give. He did forgive Shimei. And David says here in Psalm 32, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So, the good news, is, the good news here is that God does not count iniquity against the guilty. And this statement says, obviously, that we have sinned. And it's showing that God mentally does not count it against us. Let's turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 8, or 5 through 8. Because this is where the New Testament quotes David's psalm in Psalm 32. Okay? So Paul writes here to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom the Lord counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So what Paul does in the New Testament is use the doctrine of David's psalm To support the doctrine of salvation by faith alone. In other words, we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith. God counts faith in Christ as righteousness, and in turn, he chooses not to do something mentally. He chooses not to count man's sin against him, because that would obviously be a debt. That would be in the case where he would have to condemn and judge that. And Paul refers to this mental activity as well in Second Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five verse nineteen says, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgress- trespasses against them. So when God says that, it's not like he is closing his eyes to sin. There really is sin. The point is, he's not if you think mentally, on this, he's not writing it in the column of debts. He knows that mankind has sinned, but he's not going to count it against them. So, this non reckoning of sin is forgiveness. So, how is that supposed to impact us? How should that illustration of what God does change us? For unbelievers that we meet, The point then is that God would want people to seek that forgiveness from Him. He knows their sin, but He tells them, if you'll confess it, I'll forgive it. I won't count it against you. That's good news. That's how we can be blessed. Blessed is the forgiven man. That's an application of the psalm. What that does is magnify God's grace. Secondly, this forgiveness is a model for how we should think about those who have wronged us. Okay. Think about the Apostle Paul. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 4. Second Timothy 4, verse 16. This is the last book that Apostle Paul wrote. This is the last chapter. Um, these are his last words. And he said, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me. But, I des- but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Okay. okay, What you have happening here is, for all that you think Paul is a wonderful saint and everyone loved him, he comes to the end of his life and no one's standing there with him. He feels alone. But instead of lashing out in pain and hurt, he says, may it not be charged against them. May it not be counted against them. So, this is, how, this is the truth that he sees in the Word of God that God doesn't count sin against us. And he takes that and he uses it in his own life, not to count it against other people. You say, well, what happens when you do this, when you follow the example of Paul? Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll consider the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. In verse 5, and within the context of the church, <clears throat> Paul says to them, these words, that love does not, why am I not finding what I want to see? <laughs> it says that love is not rude, it's not sist on its own way, it's not irritable, it's not resentful, doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, rejoices in the truth. The point there, and perhaps it's in the NAS NAS a little bit clearer, but the point is that love does not keep a record of wrongs done. And when we do that, we fulfill God's law of love. So if you're going to have a good marriage, you're not going to be able to keep a running list of all the ways your spouse has wronged you. It just won't work. Come, You've got to choose to put the pen down, to throw away the book of all those kinds of things. Come. So there's, there's the doctrine. When we look at this, this is something as we look at Psalm 32 that we ought to rejoice in. Blessed is the man in this situation. We are blessed as believers to be forgiven. We should apply this as Paul did, not to count wrongs against other people, even if we're hurt by it. I'd say, lastly, we should fulfill this because it's the law of love. Love does this. Love chooses not to keep track of things. Okay? Now, all that said, we are very, very blessed that God doesn't reckon our sins against us. If that's how God treats us, that's how we should treat other people. Now, any questions about that? Is this shooting straight and I don't need to go into it any further? Yeah? Or really, we can ask questions at Sunday school. So maybe, maybe, I don't know, it's so hard to bring some of this up, right? Right? Because if we talk about marriages, then we start talking about us and our our wives are here and all our husbands are here. Um, when do we struggle? When do we struggle to do this? Right. We struggle to do this when we've been wronged. But why don't you think about the conversation between Peter and Jesus? Peter said to Jesus, how many times should I forgive? And what's the assumption in that passage? Um, Yes, but what's the other assumption about the sin, the nature of the sin? I'm sorry? It's repeated. The assumption there is, he did me wrong, he did me wrong again. How many times do I let the guy do the same thing wrong to me? And Jesus' answer, we don't keep, we don't keep, right, we're not, keeping, we're not keeping score here, guys, you know, we're losing track of it here. So, so what makes this particularly hard is he did it again, he did it again. Now, why is that so hard for us? right. And we almost summarize it and say, if he really loved me, he wouldn't do it again, right? That's what goes through our minds. And this is another point where when Eric and I were talking the other day, it just hit home good and solid. Have you ever sinned numerous times in the same way and asked God to forgive you? Yes. How would you feel if someone said then, well, if you've done that numerous times, you obviously just don't love God. Yeah, that sticks. That's kind of like, oh. But do you love God? You do. You don't love God as you want to you feel the turmoil of, we'll say, Romans 7, where Paul says, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, who's going to deliver me from this, right? Okay, that is the dynamic of someone who loves the Lord. They're going through that kind of battle internally. But all that to say, we struggle with other people. When they do something wrong... When they do it again. And Jesus calls us to forgive again. Same thing, perhaps even the same day, you forgive. Okay? It means you're going to make the choice to not put it in their column of debits. Okay? Is that good? Any other questions on this one? And just to remind you, perhaps, uh, last, week, last week I talked about the fact that when we choose not to remember something against someone, we don't bring it up in our, to our own minds, and by extension, we don't bring it up verbally to them and to anyone else. A lot of these, just as they're mental activities of God, there are mental activities, too. Because if we're always remembering someone's sin, if we're always remembering it against them, that's always going to that is always going to impact how we treat them. Okay? It's just hard to be nice to someone that you hate inside. You don't want to say it that way, right? So you have to choose not to think about it. Okay? Go on? All right. So I said there are two mental activities. Those are it from my understanding. Remember not and don't count. Okay? Let's go on to another one because there are ten illustrations of forgiveness as a physical thing. Stay right where you are, maybe. Psalm 32. I quickly ran over it because I knew it was coming, but Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. This is the next one. It's unique when it talks about in our day and age, <clears throat> we think of cover-ups. We think of investigations. We see how everyone wants to uncover everything. And, and that's just where we are these days. No, you know, everything needs to be put out in the open. Um, and here we have a statement that what God is going to do is cover up sin. And, and you think, how is this going to work? What is this supposed to mean? Well, when people cover up something outside of the context of sin, it means to put something between a viewer and an object. Now, think very, very uh, generally with me for a moment. If I do this and this, I just did a cover up. But it's our game. It's it's peekaboo with little kids, right? You covered it. So. In in a, in a very general way, we have the idea of a covering here. And Noah makes a cover for the ark uh, that's made out of gopher wood. He puts a pit. He puts pitch on it. It covers the ark. God covered the face of the earth with water. Okay, it's just a general term for covering something. Come, okay? and we do this kind of thing on a daily basis. We take our leftovers from our meal and we cover them up with saran wrap. Right? It's just putting a barrier there. But when a person goes beyond and this comes into the realm of sin, if a person covers up his own sin, what do we call that? What do we call the person who fools everyone into thinking that he's not what he actually is? He's a hypocrite, right? Of course, he doesn't fool God, but they're hypocrites the promise to those who cover up their sin is disaster. It says in Proverbs 28, verse 13, whoever conceals, whoever covers his transgression, will not prosper. And we've all lived through that situation where instead of confessing and forsaking our sin, for a time we hid it. We didn't want anyone to know about it. Remember David? uh, When we were going through 2 Samuel chapter 11, David has relations with Bathsheba. Bathsheba lets him know that the, she is pregnant. Remember what David did? Well, he calls for her husband, tells him to go home. He doesn't go home. That doesn't work, so he sends him back to battle with a, a death message. Has her husband killed? They get married. They have the child. And you get to all the end of the chapter, and you think, This is a successful cover-up. You get to the end of that chapter, and it says that God saw it. Displeased God. So the point is, people try to cover up their sin, but it will never be successful in the long run. God always sees it. So that's a warning. That's a warning. Um, I have another one here that comes to covering up sin. It's also a warning to those who twist Christianity Christian liberty for sinful purposes. First Peter says, "Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for sin, for evil, but living as servants of God." So that may be its own topic, but it brings in the idea of using Christian liberty as a cover up for for evil. Not supposed to happen. What is supposed to happen is that a person uncovers his sin. And what do we call it when a person uncovers his sin? Confession. Proverbs 28, verse 13, Whoever confesses the opposite of concealing and covering your transgression, he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Uh, David says here in Psalm 32, verse 5, since you're probably still in Psalm 32, um, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover... There's our term, same word. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So that's what's supposed to happen. Un- un- uh, uncovering our sin is going to re- result in forgiveness. That's a wonderful promise that God has set forth for us. Uh, I was going over this in my mind uh, I got a speeding ticket recently, which isn't fun, right? So it makes me think about these things a lot, and I get in my head about this. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, I I try to be respectful to cops and answer truthfully, but they take what you say and they put it on the ticket. And they basically said, he said he was speeding. And you're kind of like, you're asking me questions so that I'll incriminate myself so that you can give me a ticket and it will stick. So you want me to make confession so I'll be proved to be guilty. And I just want to say, you know, my business is completely the opposite of your business. Because when I call people to confess their sin, I call them to do that so they'll be forgiven of sin, not so that they'll be held to account. For some reason, for that moment, I thought to my brother Ben, who's a cop, my business is just so much better than yours. Um, the point here is uncover your sin, confess your sin, and that with that is the promise of forgiveness. So, uncovering sin results in forgiveness, and the next point we need to see is that when our sin is covered by God, we are forgiven. That's what it says in Psalm thirty-two verse one. God covers our sin; that means we're forgiven. That means we're released from punishment. So we could go to Psalm 85, verses 2 and 3. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So you have the added aspect of when God covers your sin, the result will be there's no punishment for that sin. He turns away from wrath. Again, that illustration between the pastor's job and a cop's job. The one incriminates. This one delivers. So what we have is we are called to uncover our sin. We pray that God would cover our sin, which means he'll forgive it. And when a person covers another person's sin, well, what's that called? I, I may have not given you the best context for that, but... In the Christian context, what do we call it when you cover someone else's sin? I'm not talking about some kind of criminal accomplice things here. I'm trying to talk about a picture of forgiveness. Let me read for you. First Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So what's the picture here? When a believer chooses to cover the sins of other people, he's loving them. You say, "Well, what? What's that about? Well? Forgiveness is pictured as covering sin. And the Bible talks about this with God doing that. How does God cover our sin? There's a huge theological term that refers to this God covering our sin. What does he do to cover sin? Illustrated throughout the Old Testament. Atonement. He makes atonement for our sins. And obviously, that points to Jesus Christ preeminently as our atonement of our sins. He provides a covering for us. So how is that? Sorry? Um, I think it points to it, but I think that other patches make it plain. But yes, you had like the mercy seat, and you sprinkle the blood on it, and, and different things that way, so... Other passages make it plain. yeah. Psalm 32 would just make it open for the atonement to come up, I'd say. So, what are we going to use this doctrine of forgiveness? How can we use it on a regular basis? We should forgive by covering a sin instead of repeating it to others. Proverbs seventeen nine says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. So, repeating offenses divides. Okay. We need to have a history lesson, or we just know that when we repeat things, people are divided. We know that, right? Love seeks ways to make sin disappear. Okay. Love does not parade sin. Secondly, love forgives by covering sin instead of stirring up strife. This is Proverbs 10.12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So when we are loving and covering sin, we're not stirring the pot. You know what I'm I'm talking about? It talks about offenses here and rebellions. It's trying to say going against what ought to be the norm in a relationship. Love covers those things when it, it's not the way it ought to be. So how do you respond to the sin of others that shows whether you are a loving person? You don't repeat a matter if you care about a person. But have you ever heard someone badmouth someone else? You ever heard someone badmouth their spouse or their kids? or the kids of their neighbor? Or a neighbor. Period. That's that's not love covering. That's stirring up strife. It's not what we're, that's not what we ought to do. Thirdly, love forgives by ignoring insults. Proverbs twelve sixteen. The vexation of the fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. What the fool often says, and can't help himself, is he thinks, I didn't like that, and I'm going to let someone know about it. Okay, that's, that's kind of the classic school board meeting. I've got a problem, and everyone's going to know about it. Okay, love doesn't act that way. It's not quick to say, ooh, I have a problem with that. Love ignores insults. It goes on. Fourth Love forgives by forbearing with others who repeatedly sin. This is 1 Peter 4.8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So love love one another constantly, because sin is constant. In the church, sin is constant, and that means we constantly need to bear with each other and forbear with people. And I'd say that this really comes to bear in our marriages Um, has to do with our kids too, obviously, but there are, there are things about us. There are things about our spouses that we on a regular basis just need to let it, uh, I'm thinking of the phrase like fall off your back, like off a duck's back or what, what's the phrase water off a duck's back. That's how a lot of things need to be with us. You say, someone's cranky in the morning. Okay, they're cranky in the morning. Okay, that, I get it, yeah. You know, I'm not cranky in the morning. I'm a morning person. I'm crankier at night. Okay, it's the night. Just, okay. There's a lot of times that instead of making a, making a waterloo about a situation, you just let it go. Okay? There, are, there are bigger is uh, fish to fry. Sorry. I'm trying this morning. Um, there are bigger issues, and there's a lot of times you just got to let it go. Let it go. And in time, and as a relationship between you and your husband progress, you talk through some things that annoy you, will, will say. And you make some things right. But in general, your disposition is, I'm going to let love cover that. This has nothing to do with criminality. Okay? We're not accomplices to, to crime. That's not love. But what it is loving to do is not to hold people's sin against them. Come, We want to forgive. We do that because God has repeatedly not held the same sins that you've committed against you. All right? Let's pray. Father, as we take this to heart, may you use it in our hearts to love you more and to have this sense that we are so blessed to be forgiven. And may you help us do the hard work of forgiving those around us not reckoning their sin against them, keeping track of it, and not um, choosing to bring up every single time someone else wrongs us, but instead to let love cover. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.